We're going to be in Genesis chapter 17 this morning. Genesis chapter 17 as we work our way through the book of Genesis. Before we get into the text, I just want to share with you a little bit about <clears throat> young David Harris. As many of you don't, don't know me uh, from when I was younger, and I don't know that any of you know anything about me as far as <clears throat> having ever met me before I got saved. Uh, and so, uh, just to share a little bit, and not, not gory details, but uh, I grew up in a Christian home, but I was in a, in a church where the, just the gospel was seldom, if ever, preached. And if it was, I wasn't paying attention, okay? And, uh, <clears throat> but I knew what moral, morals I could keep up with and keep a good face in the community and in school and that type of thing. And, but my heart was corrupt. And uh, I had wrong desires, wrong actions. Uh, I was really uh, out for myself, living for myself. And I remember coming to a point where I began to realize, and I was about my happiness, right? I mean, I was all about that. In fact, I can remember one night some friends and I went out uh, drinking. I was married at this time, and we had Courtney and and uh, went out drinking with a couple friends of mine. We went back to a college bar we used to go to, and we were driving home, and we stopped at a truck stop, and it was about 2 in the morning or maybe later, I don't know, and we were eating breakfast. And I remember my two friends who were my roommates in college, they began to, to wish that we could just be back in college together. And, like, I had lived with those guys. They weren't great, you know. I mean... We had a lot of fun in a worldly way, but I didn't really necessarily want to go back to that. And and they were they were both married. They didn't have any kids like I did, but they were both married and and they just you know, they were just like, Oh, I just wish we were back in college, wish we were single or you know, and that type of thing and, and I remember thinking to myself that night, now I didn't get saved that night, but I remember thinking to myself, This is not gonna end in happiness. Clearly. And both of those guys eventually went on to go through divorces. But it caused me to think, what what's going to lead to happiness? And and for a sustained happiness. Now that's a very selfish thing to be thinking, but but I thought, you know what? The only happy older people that I knew were in church. And so we started going back to church and then, you know, uh but my cousin began to witness to me and, and that type of thing, but just as I began to evaluate myself and look at myself in the light of God and His holiness, I just kept getting worse and worse as a sinner, right, in my own mind. I began to realize that I wasn't really all that great. And I thought a lot of myself in my own eyes. I was spiritually dead. How could God save someone like me? Now, as we come into... Genesis 17, Abraham and Sarah were promised offspring that his servant would be his, his heir. And God said, no, it's not going to be your servant. You're going to have your own son. And some years passed by and then Sarai came up with her own plan. She's like, okay, well, take my servant Hagar as your wife and perhaps God will give us a son through her. And and God did give them a son through her, but that wasn't God's plan. And that led to a whole mess, right? And that all happened. And now it's 
13 years later. Sarah and Abram still have no children together. Ishmael's now 13 years old. Abraham is 99. And Sarai is 90. Both have passed the time of life for having children. As far as reproduction goes, their bodies are dead. And it's that situation that we come into. And and forgive me for a little bit of humor, but this kind of in my mind, you know, this is this is God for 13 years. 13 years. Sarah stops being able to have kids. Abraham does, too. Abraham turns 99. God goes, "Okay, now it's time for me to go to work. And we come in to this situation. It's going to take a mighty, powerful God to bring a child to Abram and Sarah. Look at 17 verses 1 through 3. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, and this is the first time we have this naming of God, although it's the name that Abram knew him by. It's the first time we get it in the Scriptures through Moses. I am God Almighty. Walk before me. And be blameless. We've heard that phrase with Noah and Enoch. Walk before me and be blameless that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. And Abram's response is he simply fell on his face. God's old covenant people were marked by obedience to and through circumcision, remembrance of God Almighty. And it's no different in the new covenant. God's people are to be marked by obedience to King Jesus. In John 14, 15, Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Now, we don't keep commandments in order to be saved, but we keep commandments because we are saved. God's new covenant people are marked by obedience to and remembrance of King Jesus. And so let's look into let's continue with Genesis 17. And this section is broken up mostly by the phrase, and God said, he speaks several times here in this passage. But Genesis 17, 3, at the end of that verse, it says, And God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. And then God's going to a bunch of covenant promises for his covenant people. But when he when he renames Abram, he's basically taking responsibility for him. He is now his Lord. Right. It's like you're mine now. I named you right now in a in a similar way. What do they tell you when you take in a stray parents? You know this, right? Dad's. Don't let them name it. Don't let them name the kitten. Don't let them name the puppy. Once you do that, it's all over. It's yours. Right? It's not going to the pound or anything like that. It's going to be in your house forever. Well, God names Abram here. He changes his name. And he makes a statement. I have made you. Now, at this point, Abram, he's got one son, but it's from a sinful relationship. God's saying, this promise is so certain, it's as if it's already happened. I have made you the father of many nations. Then we get into several I will statements. So God makes promises to his covenant people. Look at verse 6. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, 
and I will make you into nations and kings shall come from you. This is new information for us. This is the first time this is mentioned. Kings will come through you. Verse 7, and I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. The four things God says he will do. He's going to make him fruitful, repeating the earlier promises, but now adding that kings will come from you. Jesus being the ultimate king who comes from Abraham, the ultimate fulfillment of this promise. And now, after Jesus' ascension, he has given us the great commission to go and make disciples of all the nations. And we're making children of Abraham through the promises, and that gets into Galatians, you can read about that. We don't have time to look at that right now. But we are being brought into God's family from a multitude of nations. And it opens up for kings of other nations to be saved. God also says, I will make an everlasting covenant with your offspring. It's a covenant that never ends. And it's ultimately fulfilled in Jesus in the new covenant. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. The new covenant, the everlasting covenant. And then he says, I will give you the promised land. Now, that's ultimately fulfilled in the new creation. And when Paul refers to this passage, he actually says that Abraham believes he's going to be the uh, he's going to possess the whole earth. Because these kings are going to come from him and he will have the earth. And then probably the greatest part of this promise is he says, I will be your children's God. It's a promise to all of us who have entered into covenant with God through the new covenant of the Lord Jesus Christ. But then God gives an outward sign for God's covenant people in verses 9 through 14. In the Old Testament, circumcision marked for God a people, and it served as a remembrance of God. And so we'll talk about that in just a minute. But Genesis 17, if you look at verses 9 through 14, God expects obedience. He told him to walk before him and be blameless. And then he says in verse 9, And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout their generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh as an everlasting covenant. An uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He's broken my covenant. So Abraham is to be circumcised. Now, I want to be very clear here. Abraham was saved by faith. That happened back in Genesis 15, right? He believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. He was saved by faith, not circumcision. 
So we have that. But this is going to serve here, he says, as a sign of the covenant in verse 11. That's a sign of the covenant between me and you. And it's going to serve as a remembrance. It marks people off as God's covenant people, but also serves as a reminder. You say, how does it serve as a reminder? Well, every time a a male who was circumcised went to the restroom to relieve himself, he would look down and he would be reminded that he was there because God Almighty brought a child from a dead man's body. And a dead woman's body as far as being able to reproduce. It took a creative act of God, a a miraculous work of God, I should say, to bring into existence a child, Isaac. And so this served as a constant reminder that they were there because God worked on their behalf. And it would also then serve as a reminder to this passage that they were to walk before God and be blameless with this covenant. Paul speaks of this passage that we're looking at this morning in Romans 4, verses 11 through 25. If you want to turn there, it's going to be a little extensive look into this passage. But Romans 4, starting in verse 11. Romans 4, verse 11. Abraham received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. Remember, I told you. Back in chapter 15, he was given righteousness. Paul now says instead of a sign, it's a seal. It's like a signet ring that would make a mark in hot wax or a jeweler's mark that he would put on a a piece of jewelry to say that it was made by him. Right. It's It's a distinguishing mark. It's a seal. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith when he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well. And to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. Paul is arguing that we are saved by faith alone, not by works, certainly not by circumcision. He says Abraham was saved by faith. Before he was circumcised. And so we Gentiles who haven't been circumcised, we can be saved and we don't have to be circumcised. But the Jews who have already been circumcised as infants, they have to be saved the same way through faith. Verse 13, for the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law, if it's the Jewish people who are keeping the law, who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but there is no law where there is no transgression. That's why it depends on faith. In order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, the Jews, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is father of us all, the Gentiles. As it is written... And then he quotes our passage. I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope, Abraham believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about a 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. 
No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteous, quoting Genesis 15. But the words that was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. Righteousness will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus, our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Abraham was saved by faith and you must be saved by faith alone today. If you've never trusted Jesus Christ as your savior, I urge you repent of your sin and trust Jesus Christ, the Lord, as your savior. Take his offering of his life on your behalf by faith and God will forgive you of your sins. Circumcision was a seal, a distinguishing mark of the righteousness that Abraham had before he was circumcised. It also served as a reminder to the Israelites that they existed because of the work of God Almighty. But what about the New Testament? We're going through Genesis here. We're not in the Genesis world anymore, right? We're in the New Testament. Look at Colossians 2, verses 11 and 12. What about circumcision in the New Testament? In the New Testament, we have spirit circumcision. God's spirit circumcises us. And we display that that has happened in our lives with a physical baptism. Look at Colossians 2, verses 11 and 12. Colossians 2, verse 11. It says, in him, that's in Jesus Christ. In Christ also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. So we die to ourselves, which is pictured in baptism. We go under the judgment waters and representing our death to ourself, and we're raised to walk in a new life following Christ. Ephesians 1, verses 13 and 14. I put it on your handout there. Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. In Him, that's in Jesus, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. And that word sealed is the same thing that we had when... Paul referred to Abraham's circumcision. It was a seal. You were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, verse 14, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. The guarantee of our inheritance, like earnest money, when you go buy a house, you put down a little bit of money that says the rest of it. I guarantee the rest of it's coming, right? The Holy Spirit is given to us as a guarantee that one day we will have an eternal inheritance in glory. Romans 2.29, Paul writes, But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. In other words, a true person of God is one who is inward, inwardly been circumcised by the Spirit, not keeping the law. His praise is not from man, but from God. And then Romans 6, 1 through 3, where we get our picture of baptism. He says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? 
Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? So that's the spiritual happening. And that's why we as Baptists believe in immersion to picture our salvation because it pictures death being sprinkled, pictures getting caught in a rainstorm, right? But being buried in water, judgment waters, pictures what happened to Christ. He died for us and it pictures what what spiritually has happened. We have died to ourselves and we now live to Christ. And that's why we baptize by immersion. So what is water baptism? Water baptism is an outward physical expression of an inward spiritual reality. In other words, you, God saved you. He circumcised your heart. You've been born again. You've died to yourself. You've been born again to follow Jesus Christ. And you want to let the world know. And so it's a sign. It's an outward expression of an inward spiritual reality. Some of you are here and you have trusted Christ. God has saved you through your faith in Jesus Christ. But you haven't been baptized. Why not? Walk before me and be blameless. This is what the Lord wants. In fact, one pastor has said, getting wet is the easiest command of God that you will obey. Right? It only gets harder from there. Right? We're going to be having a baptism service coming up. If you want to be baptized, let us know. There's a form out there for membership in baptism. Fill that out and get it to us. We can uh, get that arranged. So, New Testament circumcision is by the Spirit, physically displayed by baptism. But we, what about circumcision today? Why, why is circumcision not a requirement for Gentile Christians? Well, that was all debated in Acts chapter 15. Do Christians need to be circumcised? And I'm not going to go into the details of that, but Acts chapter 15 is where you're going to look for that. They called a council of the apostles and elders in Jerusalem And they determined that circumcision was not necessary since the Holy Spirit had circumcised the hearts of both Jews and Gentiles. On the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit came upon the Jewish people and they were able to speak in other languages as God gave them utterance. Right. So they were able to speak foreign languages miraculously. And that was a sign that in that day that the Spirit had come upon them. Now, we don't expect that nowadays. Okay. That was back then for them. But then later on, Peter goes to the house of Cornelius, who was a Gentile. And Cornelius believed. And then the spirit came upon them and they spoke in other languages, just like the Jews had. And that's all debated in Acts 15. And they're like, well, if the Holy Spirit's come upon them, they're saved. Right? They've been circumcised by the circumcision that matters. And so. Gentile Christians do not need to be circumcised in our day. And uh, Galatians 5 verse 6 says this, For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. A faith that results in works of love. So now, that's why we don't get circumcised today. Now the question becomes, Well, back in the Old Testament, the child was eight days old when they would circumcise them. Should we be baptizing children? And I have five reasons here, and they come from uh, John Piper. uh, Wrote an article on this. I think it was from a sermon that he preached. Why not baptize infants if infants were circumcised? He gives five reasons. Number one, in every New Testament command and instance of baptism, the requirements of faith 
precede baptism. Babies can't express faith, so we should not baptize them. Number two, there are no explicit instances of infant baptism in all the Bible. There are three household baptisms mentioned, but we're not told that particularly there were children there. But it was said that the word was preached and they responded to the word. Infants don't respond to the word, right? They can't understand. Number three, Paul in Colossians 2.12 explicitly defined baptism as an act done through faith. It's through the faith of the person being baptized. Children can't have that. We can't be baptized on the faith of our parents. Parents don't save children. God saves people. Number four, the Apostle Peter in his first letter defined baptism this way. Not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Baptism is an appeal to God for a good conscience. Therefore, it's an outward act, an expression of inner confession and prayer to God for cleansing. So that the one being baptized is doing that, not his parents. And then number five, when the New Testament church debated in Acts chapter 15, which you can read for yourself, when they debated Acts 15, whether circumcision should still be required of believers as part of becoming a Christian, it is astonishing that not once in the entire debate did anyone say anything about baptism standing in the place of circumcision. If baptism is the simple replacement of circumcision as a sign of the new covenant, and thus valid, it would thus be valid for children as well as adults as circumcision was. Surely this would have been the time to develop the argument and show that circumcision was no longer necessary, but they don't even mention it. So it's the Holy Spirit that matters as far as Him baptizing us into Christ, Him circumcising our hearts. Water baptism is an outward physical expression of an inward spiritual reality that the Holy Spirit has circumcised your heart and set you apart for God. And it's only for those who have made a confession of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Something children can't do, infants can't do. But we said earlier that circumcision was also a reminder to Israelites that they existed because of the work of the Almighty God. What about in the New Testament? What serves as a reminder that we exist because of the work of the Almighty God and it reminds us to walk before Him in obedience? I'll give you a hint. We're going to celebrate it. Today during the service, communion, communion. Look at First Corinthians 11, verses 23 through 32. First Corinthians 11, verse 23, starting at verse 23. First Corinthians 11:23, Paul writes, "For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you." That the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is what? The new covenant. Right? So this is the new covenant. In my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Then Paul writes, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. So let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. 
For if anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That's why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. Communion is a time when we reflect on our life and say, am I walking in a sinful way before the Lord? Right. Is there some sin that I have not confessed to the Lord? And that's not to prevent us from taking communion, but to remind us to examine ourselves and have a time of confession. Repent and confess that sin to the Lord, reminding yourself that it's because of him you exist and that you should be walking before him like a sheep before a shepherd, obeying his commands as to where to go. Being blameless, if you will. Not perfect, mind you, but blameless. So you examine yourself, you repent, and then you eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Because the the bread is a reminder of Christ's righteousness and that we need it. We needed his righteousness because our own was not a right. So we needed to be joined with him. right? And our sin required a death. And the cup represents his death. And we drink that in. So somebody else's death for my sin, not my own death. <coughs> but it's to remind us. It's a time of reminding us that we need to walk before the Lord and be blameless. So God's new covenant people are marked by obedience to and remembrance of King Jesus through baptism and communion. We're to be known for obeying the Lord. And the two signs that he has given us are baptism, a one-time thing after we're saved. And then the second one is the regular reminder that we get in communion that we, we are here because of Jesus Christ and we needed him and we're supposed to be walking before him. So God's new covenant people are marked by obedience to and remembrance of King Jesus through baptism and communion. Now, in Genesis, Genesis 17, we have some clarifications on covenant fulfillment. If, if you've been with us for a while in Genesis, the, the, the seed of the woman was promised at the fall in Genesis 3. And, and the whole lot of what's been going on is where is that offspring of the woman? Who's that going to come through? When will he be born? And that type of thing. And it's been a little while since that's been the focus of the, the stories. But we're coming back to it here because God is creating his own nation. He's, he's disowned the nations of the world. And he's going to start over with Abraham. And so now we know the seed's going to come through Abraham, but we need some clarification here. Number one, that Sarah is the woman, not Hagar. Genesis 17, verse 15. And God said to Abraham, As for Sarah, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. And then he talks about what he'll do for her. I will bless her. And moreover, I will give you a son by her. Now, I don't know why they didn't stay consistent with the translation, but if you have your Bible, you'll have a little translation note that says, literally, I have given you. Remember back up with Abraham? He said, I have given you. He says, I will bless her and I have given you a son by her. It's a guaranteed promise that's as good as it's already, as if it's already happened. And then he says, I will bless her and she shall become nations. Again, new information. Kings of people shall come from her. 
Then notice verse 17 and pick up on that because, Lord willing, when we go through Genesis 18, we're going to see a very similar phrase. Then Abram fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? Shall Sarah, who is ninety years old, bear a child? Laughter. Now, Abram, Abraham has faith, but this is pretty incredulous, right? I mean, it, maybe you've you've seen you've seen a video and and like things are you see something you've never seen before, right? And you, and you're just like you laugh. That's kind of Abraham's reaction here is he laughs, and it's going to set up a theme of laughter. Because Isaac's name means laughter. Abraham laughs when he's told. We're going to find out next time, Lord willing, that Sarah laughs when she's told. When Hagar sees Isaac, she laughs in a scoffing way at him. And then there's another time in Isaac's life where laughter is involved. Isaac's life is just begun and surrounded by laughter of some sort. It's an interesting He's an interesting character in the Scriptures. But he laughs and he wonders at this marvelous promise. The woman through whom the promised offspring will come is not Hagar. It's Sarah, despite the deadness of her womb. Eventually, God Almighty will be brought... Excuse me. Eventually, God Almighty brought the promised offspring into the world through the Virgin Mary, what we celebrate at Christmas, right? So the promised offspring is going to come through Sarah. And then so we got Isaac and then Jacob, eventually David. And it moves on down until finally there's going to be a woman whose womb is not dead, but her womb has never been impregnated. She's a virgin. And God's going to do a creative work there in her womb and bring Jesus into the world. God Almighty. There's no one more powerful than him. So we see that Isaac and then eventually through Mary, the offspring comes. And then Abram, Abraham, Genesis 17, verse 18, Abraham said to God, oh, that Ishmael might live before you. What about Ishmael, Lord? Verse 19, God said, no, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son and you shall call his name Isaac (coughs) or laughter. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall father twelve princes, and I will make him into a great nation. But I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. The promised offspring will not be Ishmael. It will be Isaac. And eventually, God Almighty sent Jesus to the earth in order to bring salvation and to be king of his people. And then in verses 22 through 27, we see the signs enacted. What began as a call to obedience, this passage now ends with the obedience of Abraham. Genesis 17, verse 22. When he had finished talking with him, God went up from Abraham. Then Abraham took Ishmael, his son, and all those born in his house or bought with his money, every male among the men of Abram's house, and he circumcised the flesh of their foreskins that very day as God had said to him. Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, and Ishmael, his son, was 13 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskins. 
That very day, Abraham and his son Ishmael were circumcised. And all the men of his house, those born in his house and those bought with his money from a foreigner, were circumcised with them. So we see Abraham obeying God based on God's promise to be his God. Now, I began the sermon talking about how that I was a weak, ungodly sinner who was an enemy of God. I was spiritually dead. How in the world could God save me? And if you look at Romans 5, verses 6 through 11, we find that when we are without hope within ourselves, God acts. Romans 5, verse 6 through 11, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. I was an ungodly man. I was weak. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. But God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more... Now that we are reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, to whom we have now received reconciliation. Christ died for us while we were still sinners. He reconciled us to God. Our tendency is to look at our life and say, my circumstances seem to say that God doesn't love me. But God showed his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So that no matter what you go through after you've been saved, it's not because you're under God's wrath. You see that? What a great... We've been reconciled to God. Titus chapter 3, verses 3 through 7. Look there. How does he do it? Titus 3, verses 3 through 7. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. You must be born again. God here described as washing us by the Holy Spirit, other times being baptized into Christ, other times being our hearts circumcised by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit regenerates us, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that, being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. God Almighty saved me. He made me a new creation. What about you? Has God saved you? You say, how do I know? Well, did you repent of your sins? Are you walking in a new life that's different from your old life? Oh, we're not perfect. We still struggle with sin, but we're not slaves to it. I urge you this morning, trust Jesus Christ as your Repent and believe the gospel. But now what about your obedience? 2 Corinthians 5.15 says that Christ died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for Him who for their sake died and was raised. Are you living your life for Christ? Or are you living your life for yourself? Or are you living your life for work? Or are you living your life for your kids? And everything that drives you and motivates you is all driven by those things and not by the One who died for you. 
I tell you this morning, if that's you in your life, I would question my salvation. Am I truly born again? It could be that you are, but you've just got your priorities out of whack. And you need to repent and put God first. He died for you so that you may no longer live for yourself, but for Him. What about your obedience? What about your obedience in baptism? Again, if you need to be baptized, get with Pastor Tad or myself or fill out one of those forms. Either there's a paper form or you can do it online. We're we're making it kind of easy for you. Remember when our missionary was here, do you remember him walking through, showing a picture of him walking through the waters, the muddy waters? And what did he tell us was in the waters? Pigs were visible and they had somebody standing there with a pole that was looking for crocodiles and hippos. Right? I promise you, no crocodiles, hippos, or asps will be in the baptismal waters when we baptize. <clears throat> I say that Pastor Tad's liable to throw a plastic snake in there next time, just but it'll be plastic. Are you walking before the Lord in obedience? Because it's not just baptism as a sign for us; it's communion, and communion is the time for us to examine our walk with Christ to make sure we're walking in obedience. And if not, to repent and be reminded of His great salvation of us, bringing us into the new covenant. Because God's new covenant people are marked by obedience to and remembrance of King Jesus.